we have to let them or help them understand their patient's language, their communication, what it looks like, because aphasia looks so different in every individual. Welcome to the Listen for Life podcast with Genevieve Richardson. Genevieve is a speech-language pathologist rehabilitating adults with communication challenges after a stroke or due to a neurological impairment. Living with aphasia is hard. Caregiving is hard. You are not alone. Get equipped with knowledge from experts in the field and professionals you need to know. We'll hear stories and experiences from others who are navigating life with aphasia. So. Put your earphones in and take a walk outside. This isn't just a podcast. This is a community, a resource, and a support system. We're in this together. Do life. Well, hello again, Gisela. Hi. Thanks for coming back. I know, she's back. She actually had a few days away after finishing her internship with Life Speech Pathology, and now she's back, and we got to finish her final evaluation today, and now we're recording another podcast. Woohoo! Woohoo! So today our topic is communication partner training. How did this come about, Gisela? Well, you asked me to do a project that I felt passionately about. And I was sitting there breaking my brain, trying to think about what I wanted to do. I really do feel passionately about caregiver support, but you already have caregiver support groups. So I was like, I can't go down that way. And I thought about communication partner training because I think outside of treatment as SLPs, we want to treat the whole person. And so I was thinking, what other ways can we treat the whole person without it being like direct treatment? And support caregiver groups is one example of that. And I think this is also another example of that. So that's why I I just ran with it. So differentiate for us communication partner training. How is that different than what we offer to caregivers now when we see their loved ones for treatment? So usually when we're seeing their loved ones for treatment, we are usually treating their loved one for their communication deficits, whether it's naming, word retrieval, comprehension, that kind of stuff. It's very direct with their loved one or our client versus communication partner training is more so training the caregiver or friends or family to better communicate with their loved one outside of the session. So how can we ease frustrations that they may be encountering with their loved one because of the lack of education or awareness and how we provide those tools so that we can make this bridge communication for both of them and make it easier for them to interact and communicate and want to talk to each other. I like your term of a bridge. Being married's already hard enough. Somebody that you've known for a long time and then you throw aphasia on top of it. And it's just... It's just so much more. It's so much more to think about. You have to be so conscious as 
the spouse or partner or significant other of the person with aphasia. It's really hard when you're in the moment and you're feeling frustrated to take a step back out of yourself and understand the message you're communicating, how you put that message together, how it could be interpreted. It's just a lot more complication. You think people had to have, you know, potentially marriage counseling before aphasia. Where are the marriage counselors after aphasia? Mm-hmm. Which is just kind of an interesting concept to me. So I'm excited to hear more about communication partner training and to let our folks know that it's out there and this can be something trained separately where it doesn't take away time from the direct treatment to the loved one, the person with aphasia. And we don't want it to be taking time away from the person with aphasia. You know, we want this to be that extra time that the people who love the person with aphasia is willing to put in in order to help and encourage their loved one to participate in life and get back into the life they used to know. That's right. All right. So let's jump in. So this is where I'm just going to ask a few questions, but we're going to let you share your message because you're passionate about this and it shows. So what is communication partner training? Give us a definition. So definition is it is an evidence-based practice and it focuses on indirect treatment through education of communication partners, how to best support their loved ones in a conversation. So that's the, I think, best abbreviated definition of communication partner training. It is evidence-based, so there's a lot of research out there to show that this is, you know, very enhancing of quality of life and for both the caregiver and the patient. So how do we get there? How do we help our, how do we help our caregivers? Well, to kind of summarize it or break it up into different pieces, we train them, but we have to educate them. So you have to educate them specifically on their loved ones diagnosis and what their aphasia looks like. And then we have to teach them how to enhance their own message and how to enhance their loved one's message. That's the portion of education. Awareness, you know, being aware of how you're communicating, how you're going to have to change, how you're interpreting a message, and also being aware and mindful of your patient's goals and needs. Because every person with aphasia thinks about communication very differently. We have some patients who really love when we give them a word like, oh, is this the word you're referring to? Yes, thank you. And then we have other patients who are like, give me a second, I'm gonna get there, do not give me the word. So it's really important that you are aware of those because if you aren't aware of their goals and their needs in terms of conversation, it's very likely that you're being offensive or not encouraging and you're just stepping on their toes. And so that's where awareness comes in. Then we have practice and practice makes perfect, right? We, you have to practice these strategies. You're not going to get them off the bat because you are changing the way that you normally communicate with your loved one or the way you used to communicate with your loved one. Practicing and encouraging others to use these strategies. Also being open to practicing alone and practicing in front of um 
their, an SLP so that they might give you feedback, which then brings me to our last part, which is feedback. You have to be open to criticism, constructive criticism, hopefully. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not going to grow. You have to welcome, you know, that feedback, that criticism so that you can change and you have to be open to different forms of communication. And by different forms of communication, sometimes that involves writing, drawing, using technology so that they can type out what they want to show you, using maps, using visuals, gestures. Com conversation is not going to be just verbal and that is where that open-mindedness comes in. You have to be open to using different forms. But that's how we get there. We use these tools, these keys in order to help get our message out to our person with aphasia and for them to get their message out to us. So you brought up a point a minute ago where you said, I'm trying to think of exactly how you put it, but that we train the communication partner based on their loved one's language where they are, where they are functioning. I'm wondering, could we offer, could we train caregivers in general terms? Like if it's different if we're training a communication partner for a client that we know very well, but is mm -hmm. it still valuable to do communication partner training with someone where we may not know their loved one? Could we still do it I and do it successfully? To speak on if we can do it successfully would be an overgeneralization, but I do think that there's a way to do it that will make a difference, regardless if it's 100% and bulletproof, it'll make a difference. Different ways of doing that is by educating broadly and covering all areas. This is what this looks like, and this is what that looks like. This is what a traumatic brain injury looks like. This is what aphasia looks like. These are some tools you can use for people with comprehension difficulties. This is some for expressive difficulties. You know, I think we can touch all bases in a very like generalized way where you could still communicate with a person with aphasia and probably still have a really good conversation. You would think that you would have to have marriage counseling before aphasia, just because marriage already is complicated. And then throwing in aphasia makes it just that much more complicated. And so that's the only reason I would say in that sense, you would want to be as detailed as necessary and, you know, touch all bases with that person specifically. So the primary caregiver has all the tools they need to be able to effectively communicate with their partner or loved one. So having those really broad tools would go miles and, you know, really make a difference. Seems to me we could really work with physical therapists, occupational therapists that are so to speak, in somebody's face, doing therapy, yeah. the nurses that might be coming to the house in a home health setting or the nurses that come into the room. There can be a lot of education and training for professionals because I think sometimes professionals get caught up in what their job is and what has to happen and they don't have the luxury of time to modify their communication with somebody with aphasia that they have to treat in that moment. But a general education may be useful 
that when they do have a little bit more time, they can approach it differently. Yeah. And even the general education of aphasia and what is aphasia would be huge huge because I've heard comments about nurses being like, oh, he's just cognitively not there. And that's not accurate. You know, cognitively, you know, clients are still there. Aphasia is just language. And so differentiating between the two is part of the communication partner training. I mean, that's why we have education, but I think it's very foundational and very key to beginning that journey. As we were going through the initial stages of the caregiver coach aphasia support training that we were doing early on in the semester, you bring up a point that it's super important for our spouses, partners, loved ones to understand where their person is. You see a lot of these quotes all over Facebook, social media, Pinterest. Aphasia is a loss of language, not a loss of intellect. I don't dispute that whatsoever. But we also have to understand that sometimes our folks with aphasia have a hard time conceptualizing their thoughts. And that's completely separate from intellect. So I'm just trying to paint a distinction between the two. If a spouse can identify when her husband, I'm just going to pick a gender, is not able to formulate his full concept, it's going to be much harder for him to find the words to express it. So I think if that spouse can identify sooner that the full concept isn't there, then she can ask inquiring questions to help get him there and keep the conversation moving forward versus being reactionary, getting frustrated, and then shutting down the communication. Because believe it or not, those things compound and they can affect a relationship. Definitely. I mean, that's communication impacts relationships that don't have a person with aphasia. So definitely impacts relationships that do. So definitely, I agree with everything you just said. So do you have some specific tips you want to give? Yeah, so some general tips. We can start off with receptive aphasia to summarize what receptive aphasia is. Receptive aphasia is a deficit in comprehension. So a person who has aphasia has difficulty or finds it challenging to understand what is being communicated to them. This is on a spectrum. So some people have a higher severity than others. So again, this is just general. But talking in a slower rate is helpful. Obviously not in a rate that is condescending, just talking at a slower rate. It's also helpful to use multimodal forms of communication. So gestures, pictures, remnants, technology, remnants being an object that you can show somebody that is meaningful, whether it's a baseball or a date that you both went to or a picture, a wedding picture, that's a remnant. I think using that in conversation can be helpful, much like you mentioned, Ms. Genevieve, it's, it helps set the concept, especially if they're having difficulty understanding the concept or like formulating that concept, holding up that baseball from that first date you guys got like went to and it got signed. Obviously this is just an example, but, um, 
would be very helpful in setting that concept, setting the foundation, setting the setting. So that's just an example of different forms of communication we can use to help them understand what we're talking about and setting context. Then we have using proper nouns instead of instead of just general nouns, you know, instead of that person over there, you would say Miss Genevieve, or instead of let's go out to eat to that restaurant around the corner, you would say let's go to the Chili's off of I-35, you know, like just being very specific, the visualization of stuff that's really helpful. And then having simple sentences instead of complex sentences. <clears throat> so that would be like sentences such as that lady is carrying the baby, which is very straightforward, and it's also in correct order. You know, the lady is carrying the baby versus that baby was carried by the woman. So that's a little more complicated to understand. Then we have eliminating distractions. If there is a conversation going on or you're in a really loud restaurant, you're going to have a harder time getting your message across. And I mean, this is, this goes for anybody, right? Like when you're in a busy place and there's a lot of distractions, it's a little harder to really listen in on what this person is saying, because there is a lady giving the juiciest gossip next door. So that goes for people with aphasia as well. Distractions are huge, whether it's sounds, conversation, you know, the TV is on in the background, the dog is barking. If you can't eliminate it, it's also important to be aware that that might be impacting how they're comprehending you. That doesn't mean they're declining. It just means, oh, the dog was barking. So that's probably why he wasn't able to understand my message. And then also be aware of their facial expressions or their body language. Are they making eye contact? Are they looking at you confused? Are they looking at you blankly? You know, all of that. So you know how to pivot and modify your message accordingly. And then also be aware of your tone because maybe they're not comprehending the content of the words, but they hear you being maybe sarcastic and, you know, that might cause misinterpretation. So you know, just be mindful of all of those things when speaking with to a person with receptive aphasia. Those are just general ones that I think you can apply across the board. I know in my own family, we don't pay attention to location. We bring up a topic that is totally not related to what they're doing, what I'm doing. It just happened to be the thought I had at that moment. So I would challenge all of the partners who are communicating with someone with aphasia. Location matters. If you're helping your husband bathe, don't talk about dinner. That's not the right time to do it. You need to do it in the context. And sometimes it's a matter of having faith in yourself that you'll remember to bring it up at the right time. So context as well as location definitely matters. Eliminating distractions Mm -hmm. is so important. Going to dinner at a busy restaurant at prime time and sitting near the kitchen where all the noise of the pots, pans, dishes, and the door opening and closing, not the best time if you're trying to get your person to engage in a conversation. You're setting them up for failure if you're in a challenging environment like that. If you need to talk, turn off the TV. When I go to talk to my husband, I'm almost always interrupting him. I wait, he pauses the TV and then we can talk because if he doesn't shift his attention, 
part of the message is going to get lost. And if he doesn't shift his attention, something not only important will get lost, but it impacts how I perceive how that interaction went. So I'm challenging all of you to start thinking about how are you talking to your significant other? Try and take a step back as if you were watching a movie and see how that interaction went and try something different the next time. A lot of this is practice and awareness. So thank you for all of those tips. Gisela, keep going. Let's hear about folks that have more expressive type of aphasia. Yeah, expressive aphasia essentially is an aphasia in which the deficits or the challenges. I really don't like the word deficits, but I I feel like clinically and like in the book, that's the word we use. But if I say deficit, just replace it with challenges. I think that's a better term to encompass what people with aphasia are going through. Essentially, a person with expressive aphasia has faces challenges in getting their message out, finding the right word to use, um, formulating sentences, anything that has to do with verbal output, not necessarily language expression in general, because there's other ways to communicate. Sometimes they're really good at gestures. They can still have effective expressive language it's just not going to be always verbal Um, some tips when working or communicating with a person with expressive aphasia is asking for clarification did you mean this did you mean to say this and repeat back the message or you can restate what you understood you know I understood that you want to do this at this time And, you know, rephrasing it to be able to be answered with a yes or no. Yes, that's what I said. No, that's not what I said. Because a lot of the time they might think they're saying one thing. And once you repeat back to them what they said, they're like, oh, oops, I accidentally had a paraphasia, you know, which is replacing one word with another, which now completely changes the message that was being communicated. So really important to clarify and restate what you understood. Give them enough time. Give them time. Wait. And I don't mean wait hesitantly because then that applies pressure. Now this person is being pressured and it's just going to get harder. It means waiting with a smile on your face, not tapping your finger, not moving around in your chair. And obviously don't wait 30 minutes for them to get this one word. This is where you have to, you know, also try to help. But this will look differently based on the person that you're speaking to. Figure out what kind of help your loved one is comfortable with. So ask permission to suggest words. Is it okay if I suggest a word? You know, sometimes they may get stuck on a word. Sometimes they'll start describing the word. If they're trying to describe the sun, they might start, you know, it's round, it's in the sky, it's yellow. That's not an invitation for you to give them that word. You still have to ask permission to give them that word. Oh, is it okay if I take a guess at what you're saying? Yes. Okay, is it the sun? Correct. Or they'll move on with their conversation. Obviously, if you are the primary caregiver, the asking for permission might start to get brushed over, which is fine. As long as you know that your person is okay with you not asking for permission and just you've set those boundaries, you understand those boundaries. If you are a healthcare worker and you don't know those boundaries, you should always be asking for permission. And then providing them with means of communication. 
whether that's technology, a phone, a computer that they can like type into or use a maps on pictures, you know, anything to help enhance their message, an AAC device. So this is like maybe a piece of paper with some food options so that they can tell you what they want to eat. AAC devices look incredibly different. That was just one example. And drawing, so providing them with paper so that they can draw or write. All of those tools um, make a huge difference because they might not be able to verbally express what they want to say. Now they can express it to you with all of these tools. So these are just a few very general tips on communicating with people with expressive aphasia. I hope that's helpful. You definitely got my wheels turning about how we could train spouses differently, possibly with different examples than like an adult, even a child to communicate Mm -hmm. with a person with aphasia. Training healthcare Mm -hmm. workers. That's a whole other avenue. It's definitely an area we glance over because as we grow up and we know we move through life, it's really easy for us to modify based on our communication partner, you know, or for our us neurotypical people, it's really like easy to modify how we're communicating with others. Introducing these tools, it's going to be different how a teenager and how a adult and a primary caregiver and a friend apply them and also how you teach them. You know, we're going to be teaching a lot more in-depth stuff to a primary caregiver versus a health caregiver, which is like you just said, you know, detail versus generalized versus what kind of message are you usually going to be giving or trying to express or understand as a child versus as an adult, all things to be considered. I think it's hard to have a generalized education where it's 100% bulletproof and 100% successful. I mean, all education and all training, I think will be effective and helpful, but there's no guarantee. And especially if you're not practicing or practicing in a mindful manner. Absolutely. Well, that was great, Gisela. She has put together a presentation and she has a nice infographic that we will link to in the show notes. So you guys will be able to get your hands on it, see it. There'll be a transcript available of our ramblings on this podcast. So you can (laughs) compare and contrast and, you know, help give you at least a jumping off point when you're communicating with your significant other with aphasia. So we're going to wrap up by talking to Gisela a little bit about how did she even get into speech pathology out of all the careers and all the world that are out there? How did you land here? To be fully transparent, (laughs) I wanted to do fashion merchandising, and my dad said, I don't think so. (laughs) He said, if I'm paying for you to go to school or if I'm helping out, you need to find something a little more reliable. And you know what? Thanks to him, I graduated the year of the pandemic. Had I gone into fashion merchandising, I don't know that it would have been that reliable. Then I started looking around. I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to be a nurse. So I was in the area of healthcare. I was like, I feel like this is reliable. I know that I love helping people. My aunt and my cousin both worked in home health, nurse managers and therapist managers. And they were like, you should do speech therapy. It'd be 
really good at speech therapy. So why don't you check it out? And so I started kind of doing some research and seeing what it meant to be a speech therapist. At the time, I only realized that it was working with kids and probably at a school, maybe like home health. I didn't realize that you could work with adults. I didn't realize you could work at a NICU. I didn't realize we did swallowing. I didn't learn any of that until like my second year of college. Once I started really getting involved and all of that, I absolutely fell in love with our field. I love working with kids. I love working with adults. I haven't done any swallowing, so I can't say I love swallowing, but I do love what I've gotten to do so far. I've realized how important communication was. I think communication is key to everything. You know, hone these tools and whatnot is really important. Importance to safety, intimacy, and all of that. It's it's the foundation. And so in the process of wanting to help people and also falling in love with communication as itself. I am so happy I ended up here and I love everything we do. That's long story short, how I ended up in speech therapy. That's pretty and cool. Stayed. <laughs> you have a great future ahead of you for whichever, whichever way you want to go. First, you got to pick the age group and then yeah. you got to pick the setting <laughs> So yeah, there's just a lot of opportunity and a lot of choices. Well, Gisela, thank you so much for coming back on today and telling us about communication partner training. And I want to wish you a happy graduation. Thank you. Thank you for having me on once again. Folks, we'll have her back again. We'll tackle some other subjects. We'll see where her her next year takes her because now she has to do what's called a clinical fellowship year. And it's about nine months. I highly recommend you get it done. It's just one of those things. Keep the momentum up, keep going, get in a good placement with a good supervisor and you'll knock it out of the park. Thank you. I'm going to get her done. (laughs) That's right. All right, folks, we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Listen for Life podcast. We hope you feel empowered and supported. Head over to listenforlifepodcast.com to see the show notes with links and information from today's episode. Do you have a topic, a resource to share, or a guest recommendation? Inquiring minds want to know. Let us know in the comments section. Wishing you a fabulous week.